Okay, so week two, I don't know what you expected uh, when you signed up for a course on power control. I don't know what I expected because I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Uh, I'm finding every week there's way more and, and trying to kind of wrestle it down and figure out, okay, what's actually going to be helpful and what, what should we cover? And uh, So today we're going to talk about power and control. And those are, I, I hit that briefly last week, those are key words in the abuse discussion. And, and how we think about power and control really matters as Christians. Uh, and it matters to all that we do. And, and so we're going to, I think you'll find, you probably found this last week, I think you'll find as we go, we're not just talking about abuse, right? It, we can tend to think of abuse in those categories of, you know, child abuse, sexual abuse, that sort of thing. And of course, that is abuse. But these categories apply broadly. And they're, um, they're huge factors. You know, this is an election year. And so you're going to hear a lot about white evangelicals. You're going to hear about Christian nationalism. You're going to hear about can you, as a Christian, vote for this party or that party? Um, what, what should Christians do? Should we withdraw? You know, one of the um, uh, issues in the Protestant Reformation, because religion had always been linked to rulers, was how... How much is our identity in Christ and in heaven contrasted with our identity as citizens of the earth and, and as belonging to certain peoples or nations? And, uh, you know, Lancaster, the Mennonites, the, the Anabaptists, the radical reformers. I was teaching my kids this the other night, so we were eating radishes for, for supper, a salad. And, you know, radish comes from the... Okay, Lori was eating radishes. <laughs> Is the royal we, um, and and the word radix is the Latin for root, and so that's where that vegetable name came from. But the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, were called the radical reformers because they wanted to reform all the way down to the root. And so when you have uh, allegiances, earthly allegiances, you're not um, those things would clutter. Your, what should be your pure devotion to Christ. And so that's why they'd be pacifists. That's why they wouldn't take oaths of loyalty. That's why they wouldn't be civil servants. They wouldn't work for the government. You don't, you don't get caught up in those things. Those are worldly things, right? We belong to another world. They wanted a radical reformation. That's the one branch of the reformation. The other is the magisterial re reformers. Uh, and so these, these categories that we're talking about apply broadly. They apply to everything we do every day. Power and control applies to what you do every day. And there's uh, a lot of pressures out there saying actually that power and control are a bad thing. That you shouldn't exercise power and control. And the abuse world is one, one place that that's really discussed. And so we're going to talk about that. But we're going to begin tonight looking at power differentials. And, and I'll just say too, please do flag me down. If uh, it's unclear, if it's going too quick, just raise your hand. I want to make sure that we're tracking and that's helpful. So I started here with two quotes, two contrasting quotes. The first is from uh, Pence and Paymar, Education Groups for Men Who Batter. That is kind of the, what they call the ur text, right? Like the, the foundational text in the abuse world. This, these are the they're secular uh, folks who formed the Duluth model. Uh, and it's just a good representative quote of what they believe. And so they, they remember they were dealing with domestic abuse. They were caring for women who were being abused. And this is the curriculum they designed. Uh, the curriculum described in this book is based on the theory 
that violence is used to control people's behavior. This curriculum is designed to be used within a community using its institutions to diminish the power of batterers over their victims and to explore with each abusive man the intent and course of his violence and the possibilities for change through seeking a different kind of relationship with women. So they're saying, okay, we have a problem. Men beat women. Why? Why do they do that? Well, because they use that violence to control them. Right? That's, the, that's their theory. And so what they're saying is we need to bring all these institutions together, the police and the social workers and the judges, and, and we're going to have these groups to educate these men. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring them into a new kind of relationship with women. Okay, so what, what kind of relationship? Well, the second paragraph. Often a fine line separates those of us who teach the class from the court mandated to attend. We've all been socialized in a culture that values power, a culture in which the thinking that we challenge in the groups is present in every aspect of our daily lives. Our schools, churches, and places of work are all structured hierarchically. All of us have engaged in at least some of the tactics batterers use to control their partners. So hierarchy is the problem. Hierarchy, structure, authority, that's the problem. And we need to get rid of hierarchy because those who are in the superior position in the hierarchy feel justified to use violence on those in the inferior position in order to control them to get what they want. Okay, that, that's the, the clear-eyed, that's a very, um, Ellen Pence was a feminist, she was a lesbian sociologist, incredibly influential, traveled the world, apparently just a very warm and engaging woman, very, very much uh, carried a burden for those who were hurting, um, but had certain philosophical commitments that drove her. And that idea that hierarchy is by definition oppressive. That's really key. That's really key. Uh, and it, uh, it resonates, I would imagine, with us to at least some degree as Americans, right? democracy that's that'll fix it right we'll all have a vote that'll make it better I'm contrasting that with a quote from Rosaria Butterfield and I would imagine many of you are familiar with her she was a uh, English professor at Syracuse she was a committed lesbian and um, her story uh, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert is her conversion story it's a great story um, she's a excellent writer uh, She's also a very um, uh, bold <laughs> person and writer. Um, and she talks about how uh, when pow Promise Keepers came to town, she said, in my war on stupid, I wrote a letter to the editor, <laughs> right? And a pastor responded and invited her to, her to his home. And eventually she converted. She became a Christian and not just a Christian, but a uh, exclusive psalmody, classic homeschooling, uh, conservative Presbyterian pastor's wife. Right? She's a very intense person. You, you get this sense when you read her. And so she, here's her description uh, of that transformation. So one of the fair criticisms of my choosing the role of a submitted wife over and against returning to Syracuse to serve as an English professor is that in doing so, I'm showing my support of biblical patriarchy. Guilty as charged. But let's be clear, I do not support biblical patriarchy because of the belief that men are good. I embrace biblical patriarchy because men are not good, Jeremiah 17, 9. 
Because men are not good, I am grateful to encourage and stand behind a godly, redeemed man who defends and protects the church and his family against ravaging wolves. So there's a positive vision for hierarchy, especially in a fallen world, right? To protect. That's one uh, positive vision for power and control. But do we combat abuse? Do we combat violence? Do we combat inequality by trying to produce strict equality or what's often termed equity in our day? Um, I should mention briefly, there's a, a philosopher, I think he's still alive, I'm not sure, he may have recently passed, John Rawls, probably the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 20th century, and his idea of justice is justice equals fairness. And fairness is identified by equal outcomes. So what we do is we look around, we can look around this room and say, does everybody have the same amount of money, same amount of education, same amount of social clout, same amount of whatever. Wherever there's an inequity, that's unjust and must be rectified. Okay, and of course, the only way to do that is to invest the government with enormous power so that they take from those who have to give to those who have not. Okay? And that, that, that view of the world has tremendous power in America right now. I just saw a half hour ago, Elon Musk posted Disney's uh, inclusion standards and what their content creators have to achieve in order to be inclusive. Uh, and it, it targets underrepresented groups, okay? And these underrepresented groups need to be basically overrepresented <laughs> in order to be inclusive. That's the, and so, th and there's four different areas and uh, 20 some bullet points. Okay, this kind of thinking is pervasive, pervasive in our, and so um, Thomas Sowell said that social justice is rhetoric plus envy. So much of how our society has been conditioned to think about the world is to look at who has and who has not and to inculcate envy into those who do not have. Right? It's not fair. It's not fair. So these things apply broadly. Right? The, the, the human drive to be envious doesn't need extra fuel. That, that flows out of our hearts naturally. And then things like social media certainly don't help that, right? But then when you have a, a massive philosophy driving it that says, look, if there's any inequality, if there's any disparity in power, that is by definition unjust. Uh, you've got a recipe for basically blowing up society. We'll talk about that more with critical theory when we get to that, but that I just want to note that because um, one of the challenges, and I'll sound this note at the end, one of the challenges is for us to see hierarchy as good because God designed a world filled with hierarchy, positively filled with it. It was his idea. And if we don't see it as good, we're going to have a, a terrible time operating in the world. So, all right, so let's turn to uh, hegemony, power differentials, and why they matter. 
how much you've seen these words, but I guarantee you they are everywhere and they're influencing um, any, any business of any appreciable size uh, most likely has an HR person who's operating out of these terms. Uh, every public school is spending massive amounts of money, especially at the uh, higher education level, but even down into in, in achieving, uh, in, in identifying and dealing with Penn Manor. We dealt with this with Penn Manor a couple years ago. They put out a plan, right, to address, address inequities, um, thinking that it would help, which it never does. So hegemony, uh, I just use a definition here. Uh, you may have heard of Robin DiAngelo. She's the one who wrote uh, White Fragility. Um, she says, so hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of a society. So who controls how the society thinks about the world? The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. It enables domination to incur with the consent of the minoritized group. So the mi minoritized group accepts their lower position in society because they come to accept the rationalizations for it in ways that serve dominant group interests. Only an academic can write that confusedly. But she, she's saying um, he cultural hegemony is when a group sets up society to their own advantage, and that's bad. And one of the key ways that plays out is w when those who aren't in the majority accept it. Because, th because the society has been explained to them in terms that make their lower status uh, sound good. And so you, I don't know if any of you saw a few years ago the Smithsonian uh, released uh, a document on whiteness and how oppressive whiteness is. And they talked about things like um, being hardworking showing up on time, like <laughs> things that are, are, have nothing to do with your skin tone. Right? But what they mean by whiteness is basically uh, Western Christian civilization. And, and so to understand what's going on in our world, we have to understand that uh, so much of what's happening is it's Western Christian civilization that's being attacked. And so those concepts, like, like uh, presumption of innocence, like two or three witnesses, those biblical standards of justice, those things are identified with whiteness and that white people have set those up to oppress everybody else. That's how it's being presented, right? That, and so um, because the majority of the founders of America were white, it was set up to benefit white people and it is therefore oppressive to anyone who doesn't fit in whiteness or heterosexual or capitalist or, right, you can just go down the list. Okay, that's, that's the idea of hegemony. Related to that is the idea of power differentials. And so this is my attempt at a, a quick definition. Uh, power differentials is, is recognizing the disparities of pow power between two parties. And so it could be two individuals, it could be two groups. It's saying, where are there, where's there a difference? And that power can take many forms. So it could be physical, right? Somebody's physically stronger, they're bigger. It could be economic, right? How do the rich oppress the poor? Well, usually it's uh, the poor don't have the resources to fight back effectively, right? Or, or the rich know how to, you know, use a loophole to get around a re regulation to, so 
economic, it could be social. Every teenager feels that, right? You walk into a group, you don't know anybody, you don't have any friends, and what do most, most teens feel just incredibly awkward. They feel like they don't belong. They feel like they don't have a, ch a chance here. All of a sudden, you're hyper-aware of your differences, right? So there's many ways that there's power differentials, but the working assumption is that those with power privilege their own group and their own values to the disadvantage of others. Okay. So one of the questions I want to ask is, is, is that bad? Is it bad when a group privileges their own values to the values of others? What do you think? Not inherently. Why not? Privilege has become a tainted word in our day, right? But you all want to privilege your children, right? You want your kids to do well. You want them to get a, a good start in life. And there's always going to be dominant values in a society. It, it, it's n there's never going to be this, this idea of what, what we've seen in the last 15 years is the, the um, delusion of a neutral public square and and that there's somehow this uh, neutral there's no values all, everyone's welcome you know diversity is our strength right that delusion has been shattered because it's a weak value system and a strong god just comes in and crushes it <laughs> and just says i don't care about your diversity i got the guns all right here we go boom and and that's happening in europe uh, as islam has come in overwhelming Europe. So that idea of power differentials, the idea of a, a group would, would uh, privilege their values. So is it better, so is it better, let's talk about our country, is it better for America to have Christian values represented in our legislation, in our authority, or is it better to have other values represented? Can, I mean, can we say that? Is that okay to say? Right? There's a Southern Baptist pastor who just became a state senator in Oklahoma, and he introduced a, a bill to ban pornography in Oklahoma. And people lost their minds. Right? I mean, Jimmy Fallon did a monologue on how ridiculous this is, and Rolling Stone did a cover article on how, uh, I don't know if it was a cover article, but they did an article on how dangerous this is. So is society better if porn is legal or illegal? Illegal, right? I mean, it should be. <laughs> it should be. So it, would that be privileging Christian values to outlaw porn? Absolutely. Would that actually prevent abuse? Absolutely. But, but the people who talk a lot about abuse oppose outlawing pornography. Why is that? Right, so we have to think through, we, we need to think through, if Christianity is true, then it's the best possible value system for the world. And, and we have been the beneficiaries of Christians before us building a society that reflects tremendous Christian values.
that if you go to other countries where those values have not been ascendant, there's all kinds of problems. That was one of the benefits of my time in Wyoming is to go and see, oh, well, this is, you know, we went to Cuba, right? Officially atheistic. Incredible poverty. Incredible injustice. Right? Went to Morocco, officially Muslim. Incredible, incredible oppression. Less oppression than, because they weren't as committed to their Islam as other places. But the God of the system matters and shapes the society. Right? So it, this is one of the, the payoffs. Like, how should we think about our role in the world and the role of Christianity in the world? And is it good or bad to privilege these things? Okay? So I included a quote here from uh, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. Justin, last I knew, was an Anglican priest. And they've written a number of books on abuse, uh, Rid of My Disgrace, Is It My Fault? Uh, and there's some, there's some helpful stuff in there. Uh, but as relates to this issue, they have this quote. The core of a healthy relationship focuses on equality. Once a power imbalance has occurred in a relationship, it opens the door for abusive behavior. What do you make of that? Do you think that's true? Is the core of a good relationship or a healthy relationship focused on equality? Yeah. Right. So uh, on one level, this is true because if there's no power, we talked about this briefly last week. If there's no power differential, there there can't be abuse. Right. I I need to be stronger than someone else. So if um, so when a government acts tyrannically, it's because they've got the power. They've got the sword or the guns or whatever. When a husband acts tyrannically, abusively, right? he's, he's generally using loud voice, big size. Right? When adults abuse children, they're overwhelming. Right? So that power differential in in a very limited sense, does open the door for abuse. You can't have abuse without it. But what they're s that's not all they're saying. They're saying that the power differential is tied to an unhealthy relationship. And so part of what we're, we need to wrestle with tonight is to think about power and control and power differentials and say they are baked into the world, right? God designed a hierarchical world. Uh, that's good. And because of the fall, it's also susceptible to abuse. And if we try to get rid of abuse by getting rid of power, getting rid of authority, getting rid of hierarchy, uh, we actually just create more abuse because um, it's that vacuum effect. Somebody's gonna step in, right? Somebody's gonna, I'm usually <laughs> uh, a, a tyrant. So the core of a healthy relationship focuses on, on equality. Well, a certain level, like in order to relate to my wife, there needs to be equality, right? We're, we're equally created in the image of God. We're equally human. But the best parts of our relationship aren't actually about equality. It's actually the differences that make it much richer, right? 
there was a pastor in um, Corrieville named Sam Andreotti, and he did a, a study with men who had been, who had uh, practiced homosexuality and repented and come to Christ and, and ended up marrying a woman. And to a man, they said, this relationship is so much richer than anything I had before because she's different. She's other than me. Right? The differences are a big part of the richness. Um, so, yes, there's power differentials. Yes, they're necessary for abuse. But they are not, by definition, abusive. That is what broader society is saying. Any power differential is, by definition, abusive. And as Christians, we have to do better. We have to think about that more clearly. Uh, of course, Marx, uh, Marx especially uh, addressed the economic issue. Right? He talked about how we're alienated from the, the fruits of our labor, basically, and that the, the um, bourgeois, you know, they own the means of production. They're, they're holding the workers down. Of course, it's not that there's nothing to that. There's been plenty of that in history. Uh, and so if the government can just come in and kind of blow everything up and take over and redistribute, then we'll, we'll finally get, you know. That's why they keep saying, yeah, it just, but it hasn't been practiced right yet, right? We just get, you know, nobody's quite done it. Yeah, maybe that's because it actually doesn't work, right? They but that was Marx, and Mark hit Marx hit the, the economic angle. So what we're dealing with today with critical theory and all that isn't so much Marxism as neo-Marxism. They, they, it's a new form of it that's broadened out from economics to every, every form. Um, so there are power differentials in the world. A lot of times the critics are right, whether to a little bit or a large degree, in identifying problems. Right? There's plenty of evidence of abuse and oppression and tyranny and injustice in the world. Plenty. And um, we don't honor the Lord or care for people by denying those things. We just need to think through them biblically so that we don't prescribe a solution that uh, doesn't work and damages people farther. Right, the problem with the Duluth model is they say power and control is a problem and equality is the solution. It's not. Um, so uh, liberation theologies, these tend to be, uh, well, like Theological Seminary. I don't know if you've been on their website recently, but look at their course offerings. It's, uh, it's pretty wild. Um, Latin America has had a lot of these uh, liberation theologies, you know, the idea that Jesus came to uh, identify with and liberate the oppressed. That, that's a pretty key category uh, where the Bible doesn't talk so much of Jesus liberating us from our oppression. Right? It talks about him saving us from the wrath of God. Is the problem that we're broken or that we're in rebellion? Is the problem that we're oppressed by unjust social structures? Like that is, that can be a problem. But is that what Jesus came to save us from? Or did he came to save us from rebellion? Um, and, and does Jesus identify with us? That's actually a big, and that, that's a tough one. Right? Because in certain ways, yes, he came as a man. Right? He, he, he knows our frame. He knows what we're but dust. He we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But there's a difference in him coming as our priest and savior 
our king or him coming as you know Che Guevara or Pancho Villa or <laughs> like who, whichever kind of liberation, you know, Fidel Castro or uh, not all Latinos, there's others, but those are the ones I know, okay? <laughs> like, um, you know, who did he come to be with us and throw off the oppressive tyrannies of the world? It's different. So what, what all this produces is the oppressor oppressed paradigm. Think about, do you remember years ago, the 99 and the 1? Remember driving downtown Lancaster and the people, uh, the Occupy movement? Isn't it amazing how, how quickly these things <laughs> turn through? Right? And, and the whole appeal of that is unjust, injustice. It's unjust. Right? Why does Elon Musk have so much money? Um, if he just gave us all X amount of dollars, think about it, even. Is that how we should think about the world? Ah, the answer is no. Not that you're wondering, but that's no. <laughs> um, so related to this is this idea of group identity. Okay? And so in a critical theory world, and I talked about this at the critical theory seminar, you are not so much, if you think of identity on three levels, you've got individual, group, and universal. So we are all mankind. We are all individuals. And critical theory isn't interested in either of those. What they're interested in is the groups that you belong to. Man, woman, skin color, sexual orientation, economic level, education level, um, bodily ability or disability. Okay. And so you become your group identities. You are the sum total of your group identities. And the more that those identities are identified as oppressed, the more oppressed you are and the more deserving of some manner of reparation. The less those identities are oppressed, the more you're an oppressor, which is the unpardonable sin uh, to which you can only pay penance for the rest of your life. Okay? So, My only non-oppressed identity is I'm an older worker. I'm over 40. Everything else about me is oppressor in that framework. Right? And these things profoundly influence how the world thinks about abuse. Because there's always two, at least two parties in a situation. Whoever has the most oppressor categories is going to be get the presumption of innocence pretty much every time. And especially if you fit the majority category, you're going to get the presumption of guilt. Okay. So these are really influential. And you'll, you'll notice that even in what's what hits the media and what doesn't. There's certain crimes that the media will always publicize and certain crimes that are n never touched. Why is that? Because there's a value system driving it. What part of what that does is it fuels perceptions of this is a massively abusive group and this is a massively abused group. Okay. So I know these are big categories, um, but they're a part of us thinking about and uh, 
actually dealing justly and biblically with what goes on in the world. So does that all make sense, more or less? Yeah. So let's look at power and control in Scripture. And this is quick. It's the, the four categories of biblical theology, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, I put a quick references here. There's many more, but just, you know, look at these verses. The glory of young men is their strength. Be strong and courageous, right? Do not fear or be in dread. Uh, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Be strong and let us use our strength for our people. In the, right? So there's just dozens of them here, and there you could get many more. Right? The last one, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So it doesn't seem like the Bible has a negative view of power and control and authority and strength. Uh, even though I think more and more evangelicals talk about weakness. Right? Gary Packer wrote a book, Weakness is the Way. Uh, and there's uh, I, one of the abuse books I read was a I'm not going to remember the title. The Way of the Dragon. But it's contrasting these, these approaches to power. So uh, one way to get at this is uh, the Emperor Constantine. Uh, I saw that Rome just unveiled a 42-foot reproduction of Constantine the Colossus, right, from ancient history. They found some parts, and they scanned them, and they put it together, right, this enormous statue of Constantine. And if you know the story, church history, right, uh, Christianity was largely um, persecuted, not uniformly. Some areas were worse than others, and some emperors were worse than others. And then Constantine comes along, and uh, there's a battle to see who will have control, who's going to be the successor, who's going to be the next emperor. And the night before the battle, he sees a sign, in this sign conquer, and it's the sign of the cross, and he paints it on the shields and Right, and then and they go, and he wins, and he's the emperor, and he um, takes Christianity from illegal to legal. He doesn't make it the established religion, but he makes it legal. It's not till later that it's made the official religion of the empire. And there's many people who look at church history and say that is where Christianity fell. As soon as you bring in political power, it's done. Right. As soon as it became so, uh, you know, the, the Nicene Creed, you know, the church is, is Arius is out. He's got these catchy songs that are heretical. People are singing them. Um, and and Constantine, who wants religious peace in his empire, says we need to solve this. And so he calls a council at Nicaea in 325. And he brings all these bishops in and he pays for their way. There's a story, you know, a lot of these guys had scars of persecution, missing eyes and limbs and. Uh, there's one bishop who was missing an eye, and Constantine went and kissed it, kissed that socket, the empty socket, right? As a sign of, it's gross, but it's a sign of favor. Um, and, and he says, you guys need to solve this, solve this problem of who Jesus is. Is he the firstborn, is he a created being, or is he God? Is he the God of created life? Um, and they, they don't solve it. God solved it. He revealed it, right? They just agree with God and say, yes, he's God, right? And they you get the Nicene Creed. Um, but that's imperial involvement in religion. 
it, it could be to your advantage in the Roman Empire to say you're a Christian. Right? So was that all bad? Was Christianity never supposed to have earthly power? Uh, Diane Langberg is one of the big voices in the abuse movement. She's outside of Philly. Uh, she's a psychologist, author, and, um, and she, she says, yeah, that's the problem. Christendom. Christendom's the problem, right? And, and that's why we fight for our systems of power. That's why we – so is that the problem? Is Christianity never supposed to have that level of success? Were we always supposed to be the outcasts, the persecuted ones? Did, did, did we lose something? And I think the answer is the same, right? No, not inherently. It's not inherently the problem. There's actually a lot of good. Um, I was talking to a, a young man a few years back, and he was talking about the political election, political, the presidential election. And he said, um, you know, I'm not too worried about it because the Bible says a lot about persecution. I think we'll be okay. And I wanted to smack him. I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, what, what? <laughs> It's better to not live in a place where you're being persecuted, right? Is it better for us that if people are dying? No, it's, it's better to not be persecuted. It's better to not have Christianity opposed. Does God work through persecution? Absolutely, right? Will he continue to build his church? Absolutely. But we ought not to want that, right? We ought, we ought to want it to have good effect. So... Tremendous good came out of Constantine embracing Christianity. There are certainly dangers that came along that as well. Um, but that's related to how we think about power and control. So if we think about power and control at creation, we start with God. And so the doctrines of sovereignty and providence, that God rules over all things and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Part of how we know that power and control are good is that they are attributes of God himself. He is the all-powerful God. He is omnipotent, omnipotent, right? All-powerful. Uh, he rules. The Bible is uh, un, um, unabashed <laughs> in that declaration that God rules over all things. And so we got to start there. He created everything by speaking words. And, and so uh, at creation itself, we see power. Right, the, the Bible begins with just this tremendous demonstration of power. And it, it's so, right? <laughs> God said, let there be light. And there was light. And I think that the impact of that phrase we miss. Can you do that? I mean, can you do that with anything where you're like, you might feel like it. I, I remember going to Jared's house when John was little and they had a little Alexa He'd be like, Alexa, and he'd, say, he'd play, say a song that it should sing, right, that it should play. Like, that kind of feels like godlike power, right? You give a command, and it comes out. But we don't, we don't have that power. You cannot speak things into being. God does. Unimaginable. And it's so succinct. Let there be light. <laughs> light. Of all, like, this massive thing. And God just says, yeah, let that be. Right? And there it is. Unbelievable power. And then you read Genesis 1, verses that we know we've read many times, but I want to draw your attention to a few words. Uh, 
So make man in our image. Let them have dominion over. That's power and control. Right? Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that the Bible doesn't repeat things lightly. And so it's just, it's like a hammer over and over and over and over. Right? Exercise dominion. Made in the image of God to exercise dominion, to rule. We were made in the image of God to rule. One of the ways I think this has changed in the evangelical church is you hear very little talk of dominion anymore. You hear a lot more talk of stewardship, right? Stewardship is a biblical word, but it's not the full picture. We're not just middle management trying to squeeze out the best, you know, ROI. Like it's dominion, it's rulership. We were made to rule over creation. Okay, and then uh, you get down through the poetry, and God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, right? And over and over and over. So created, put in the garden to rule, and then to have a bunch more of you so you spread around the earth and the rule spreads with you. So it, on a fundamental level, that's why we're here. We're here to represent God in exercising dominion on the earth. And we all have things that we do that are the exercise of dominion that we enjoy, sometimes at a very existential level. You don't even think about it, right? You, you, know, you have a violin, and you tune it, and you play it skillfully, and it produces beautiful notes. Right? You're taking wood and strings and, and tones and producing music, right? Or you till the earth and you plant seeds and you get flowers and you get vegetables and you, you know, or you take raw materials and you build a house or you make an engine work or like, you know, you fix a body. You, like there's, there's a thousand ways that we exercise dominion and represent God and rule on the earth for his, for his glory. We were created to do that. We're not just created to, you know, get through however many years the Lord gives us and hope we don't mess things up too bad. You know, like we're, we're trying to build something. We're trying to do something. We're trying to accomplish something. And we're representing the Lord as we do it. Right? So it's good. Like, it's good to be strong. It's good to be smart. It's good to be capable and competent. And that's good. We should pursue those things and, and not be ashamed of it. Okay. One, of, one of the things we have to combat is uh, kind of the hippie Jesus uh, image. <laughs> you know, uh, the hippies uh, harmed us in various ways. Right? Their sense of justice was one, but their sense of Jesus was another. Um, but yeah. If you haven't watched Lucian Satire and Frank the Hippie Pope, you got to watch it. He's, uh, they're hilarious. Um, and then look at the psalmist. So you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children 
of man. Okay? So we're here to exercise dominion. We're here to exercise power and control that's baked into being human. Uh, and so Richard Belcher, who's uh, at RTS, uh, Reformed Seminary, he says, of course human beings rule creation under God's authority. Practically, this means that it's appropriate for human beings to use creation for their benefit. Is it wrong to benefit from authority? Is it wrong to benefit from power and control? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but Belcher says, no, it's not. It's actually right for us to use it for our benefit. John Murray uh, looked at Mark 2.27. He says, in the sense in which Jesus spoke of the Sabbath, so you, you know that saying Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in the sense in which Jesus spoke of that, as made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so we may say that the earth and its resources were made for man and not man for them. He was to exercise dominion over them. They were not to rule over him. The earth and its resources were to be brought into the service of his well-being, enjoyment, and pleasure. That's pretty different than the prevailing attitudes of our elites, right? Like people were cheering during COVID because everything shut down and look how much better the environment is. Because, you know, the, some of the World Economic Forum folks want to drastically reduce the population to restore the earth to its pristine state. Um, you know, my parents' generation was very much influenced by that whole population bomb. Don't have so many kids. We're going to have... We're going to lead to widespread famines. It's funny how, like, you can forget generationally, but in the 70s, they were predicting a great ice age, not warming, but cooling, and, and global famines because of too many people. And there's far less poverty <laughs> than at that time. It ridiculously amounts less. I don't know the stats offhand. And, of course, the warming earth has actually been better for people, um, and the cooling did not come. So, but that all relates to how you think about our role on the earth, right? So, can, can and do humans harm the environment? Absolutely, right? Do we need to honor the Lord and how we use the earth? Absolutely. Should we benefit from it? Absolutely, right? Calvin, uh, in talking about Genesis, he said, God certainly did not intend that man should be slenderly and sparingly sustained, but rather by these words he promises a liberal abundance which should leave nothing wanting to a sweet and pleasant life. Calvin says, look, look, look at creation and look at how um, uh, God's, uh, Edward said, he compared God to a fountain. He said, it's no, no defect in a fountain in that it's prone to overflow. Right? It's just got so much it just overflows. Look at the abundance that God baked into the world. Even, even today, you can look outside in a fallen world. It's still a ridiculous abundance, right? So imagine the garden before the fall. And, and so Calvin's saying God didn't intend for us to, to be slenderly and sparingly sustained, but to have a liberal abundance, right? Is God stingy? We don't see that in scripture. Okay. So I know these are broader points, but they're very much related. So uh, there's a popular argument today that we're going to get to that it's always wrong to use power for personal benefit. Okay. So that's and that's that's very prevalent in abuse 
circles. Uh, one final thing on hierarchies. Uh, you see that baked into creation, right? So the, the hierarchy is God, man, creation, the rest of creation, right? And within man, so I use man advisedly, three ways, right? So all of us exercise dominion. And within the male-female, the man-woman distinction, there's hierarchy as well. And, and you see in Genesis 2.15, God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. There's, there's your power and control, right? Work and develop this and keep it, protect it, right? Protect it from evil. And, and Eve's not, and then God says, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of that tree. Eve's not created. And then after those commands, Adam names the animals. And then God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Actually, I think he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper. Then he names. But, and so you see logically in the flow of the argument, Eve is created to be a helper to Adam to fulfill his role in working and keeping the earth. And that's where Paul says, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. So there's a hierarchy there. There's a design, right? She's to look to him for direction, for leadership, right? Again, what is that? Well, that's sexist. That's misogyny. That's whatever, right? Except it's good, except it's God's design. Can it be abused? Absolutely. Is it abused? All the time. Do we therefore try and get rid of it in order to prevent abuse? Only if we're dumb, right? You don't, you don't produce good things by going against God's design. You embrace God's design, right? And so that's why you don't, you know, if somebody's abusive or ten even has tendencies that way, you're not ultimately, so if it's a man with his family, you're not ultimately helping him if you, sa if you say, you need to get rid of all your power and, and produce a negotiated equal relationship. Right? You say, you need to understand what power's for. You need to understand why the Lord gave you strength and authority. Right? Why he put you in this position. What you're to exercise your power in order to accomplish. To whom you're accountable for the exercise of your power. You know, Lewis has that um, famous quote that we've uh, castrated the geldings and bid them to be fruitful, right? Like you don't help men by telling them to not be men. You help men by telling them what manhood actually is, what it should be aimed at, what it's about, what it's for. And you don't help women by saying you should be second-rate men. Right? You help women by saying, here's what femininity is for. Here's why God put you on the earth. Here's, here's how you glorify the Lord. Right? But all those things are just deeply contrary to the values of the world that we're living in. Uh, the world that we're living in says we have to be indistinguishable in order to be equal. Uh, and there's, there's actually a value system below that that we'll get to. But it, it's important for us to see that hierarchies are built into God's creation and that they're good. Um, all right, so that's creation, fall. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
So Genesis 3, the serpent comes in. What's he doing? He's making a power play, right? This is the first time in the Bible that you're getting an alternative explanation of reality from gods. Satan's claiming authority. He does it very subtly, but he's saying to Eve, listen to me. Don't listen to God, listen to me. He does it through questions, right? Often questions, we, we tend to think questions are genuine. A lot of times they're not. They're trying to accomplish something. Did God really say? Right? That's not true. You won't die. Here's what's going to happen. And so there's this questioning. And then in that questioning, we see what's he doing. He's undermining the hierarchy. So God has put Adam in to work and to keep. Satan doesn't attack Adam. He's responsible to keep. He attacks Eve. He, he subverts. And, and actually, when you think of Satan in his role as a creature, it's a total inversion of the hierarchy. So an animal to a woman to a man to God. It's, it's inverting the hierarchy. He's undermining it, right? Then when the curse comes, the man and the woman are cursed in their roles and responsibilities. And so the woman's cursed as a wife and as a mother, and the man is cursed as a husband and in relation to his work, right? That's part of how you can see what our roles are in creation. And what this... What this represents is uh, this idea of pagan flattening. And there's a, there's a fascinating book by a man named Peter Jones. Uh, he's been writing about these themes for a long time. Ligonier has some of this stuff. But he wrote a book, The Other Worldview, Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat. And he says there's basically two religions in the world. There's oneism and twoism. Christianity is twoism. Uh, Judaism and Islam are corrupted versions of twoism. Everything else is oneism. All is one. And a, a key uh, distinctive of paganism has always been flattening distinctions. Right? So we're all part of this divine essence of, right? And you don't have male and female. You don't have good and evil. It all just kind of blends out. And the ancient pagan temples, they would have androgynous priests where you couldn't tell male or female. That's a distinctive feature of paganism. We want to get rid of those. And so it's no surprise as our country is trying to throw off God and embrace paganism, what are we seeing? We're seeing the trans stuff. We're seeing the, right, the cue, the queer, is there is no normal. Saw an article last week that was saying that babies experience sexual desire. Like where, where do these people come from? Right, the, these values that are driving them. There is no normal. You know, why do they so desperately want to control the schools? So they can educate the children in these values. Okay? So this pagan flattening, Lewis talks about it in that hideous strength. I don't know if you've read the Space Trilogy, um, but that hideous strength especially, that's the last volume of it. And uh, Jane is dealing with the director, and, um, and she's being converted, basically. And she's also becoming more feminine. It's very interesting. Um, but the director says, I'm afraid there's no niche in the world for people that won't be either pagan or Christian. Right? Those are kind of the two options. We're either going to flatten everything out, think of us ourselves as all part of this ooze of goos of oneness, 
or we're going to see, you know what, there's a creator and a creature, that's a distinction. There's male and female, that's a distinction. There's good and evil, there's, that's, you know, there's beauty and ugly, there's, right? Those distinctions are God's design and they're good. But the devil has always been about undermining those things. And then from that, from the fall, from the curse, you get abuse, tyranny, and oppression. And so I just list some of the examples just in Genesis. Right? So Genesis 4, you have Cain murdering Abel. Genesis 11, you have uh, rebellion and insubordination against God at Babel. 12, Abram and Sarai, where he is a bad husband. 16, Hagar and Sarai, where she's, Sarai is oppressing Hagar. 19, Lot and his daughters both ways. Right, First, he offers them to be raped. And then they take advantage of him to get pregnant. Right? Both those things, wicked, abusive. Uh, Genesis 20, Abram and Sarai again with Abimelech. Uh, Genesis 34, Dinah, who's uh, raped by Shechem, uh, the son of Hamor. So I use Hamor for him. You know, that's where all those names, right? Knutson, Andy Knutson, he's the son of Knut, right? Good Norwegian. Uh, Joseph and his brothers, they kidnap him, beat him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. Abuse, oppression, right? Judah and Tamar where he's mistreating her and then uses her as a prostitute. Joseph and Potiphar's wife, where she uses, so that's a good example, right? Because she's a woman. And you think, well, she can't, she can't take advantage of him sexually. Where Her power isn't physical. Her power is social. She's the wife of one of the main officials in Egypt. She's got social power. That's why when she says, this slave abused, mistreated me, who are they going to believe? Not the slave. They believe her because of who she is, because of her status. Power differential. Okay? And, and that's just 39 chapters. If you go through the Bible, you'll see these things over and over and over and over and over again. Right? That's where this, so using the power, using the capacities, using the authority, using the things that God gives us to exploit others selfishly, all right? Then redemption. Uh, there's a number of interesting things in redemption. Uh, we see Jesus refusing illegitimate power. So when the devil comes and says, hey, give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Nope, right? Jesus wasn't gonna, Jesus did come to take power you know, I think um, we can tend to th see, think of Jesus meek and mild, right? The baby in the manger. He's not that anymore. Right? He's waiting to come as the king. Revelation 19, white horse, king of kings, lord of lords, army arrayed in white, sword in his arm, right? Rod of iron, crush the nations to tread the furious winepress of the wrath of almighty God. And the animals will feast upon his enemies. That's who Jesus is. So he came to take power, but not, the first time, not the way his disciples were thinking about it. And certainly not the way the devil is offering it. So he rejects that. Um, he rejects illegitimate power. Uh, the foot washing uh, instance, I think, is a really interesting one because that's often held up as, the, here's the model of servant leadership, right? Servant leadership means you lead by serving the most. That's not actually what's going on in the foot washing. 
And so when you look at the foot washer, you see, yes, Jesus is serving. He's taken the lowest position. He's also completely in charge. And so he directs his disciples. He says, you guys go do this. Make the preparations. Then, he sh- then they show up and say, okay, now sit down. Right? And then he washes their feet. And Peter says, not my feet. And Jesus rebukes him. Right? And then, so he's teaching them. He's in charge the whole time. At the end, he says, you call me teacher and, and, teacher and Lord or teacher and master. And you're right because so I am. So it's not just Jesus saying, here, just let me serve you guys. He is serving them. Right? We don't want to minimize that. But it's not just service. He's leading them profoundly. And that's also one of those categories that has tended to get lost in modern evangelicalism. They think servant leader means you serve the most, and that's how you're a leader. Whereas church history, and I think scripture would testify more, no, you leading people is serving them. That's how you serve them, by leading them. And I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons that that men can struggle so much to lead in relationships is they don't have a positive vision for leading as service that glorifies God because they've been told this is bad. If you want to exercise authority, that's bad. Don't do that. Just wash feet. Right? So not pitting things against each other that the Bible doesn't. Yes, wash feet and lead and teach and whatever the role requires, that's what we need to do. Um, And then we see Jesus uh, liberating by defeating the demons, by defeating the natural forces, um, defeating sin and death, giving gifts to his church, being exalted in Philippians 2, having a name that is above every name. Okay? So in redemption, there's powerful power and control. In Jesus, we see the right exercise of power and control. Right? So much of Jesus' earthly career is him saying, Here's what the kingdom of God is like. Right? I'll show you what the kingdom of God is like. We raise the dead. Right? We heal the blind. We teach the truth. We rebuke <laughs> the false teachers. Right? We cast out demons. Like this is, These are the values of the kingdom. And then in the consummation, of course, uh, is the fulfillment of the reign of Christ and of his people. We will reign with him. Uh, and so Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley say, In the new creation, God's children will exercise a dominion similar to that granted to man in the first creation, but with far greater glory, for they shall reign in union with God the Son incarnate. And that's that's a pretty good gloss, actually, for what Revelation is. It's Eden better. It's a better Eden. The conditions are the fulfillment and an improvement. Um, And you see that. And we could get into that, but we don't have time. So, so power and control belong to God, delegated to us. We don't have God's power and control. We are his representatives, his ambassadors. We're under his authority. That's really key. Um, can and are abused often in this world, but are not in and of themselves abusive. And, y- and, ca- and can and should be exercised redemptively and for the good of others. Related to that is this idea of power over versus power under. I don't know if any of you have heard of Greg Boyd. He was a pastor in Minneapolis. He may still be. 
He was in the same denomination as Piper. So he was one of the key voices in the open theism mo movement, which is the idea that for our choices to be meaningful, God cannot uh, overrule or be sovereign over them, right? And actually, they don't exist until we choose. So God can't know the future uh, conclusively, because if he did, then that would remove our responsibility and accountability. Therefore, God's going along for the ride with us. Now, he's really good because he's been al alive a long time and he's, he knows a lot of people. And so he's really good at like having a pretty good idea. But he starts his book by saying with this woman who got married to this young man and everybody was for it and they're going to be missionaries. And this dude just goes off the rails, right? Apostatizes, adulterous. And, and she comes back to Boyd and says, why did God let me do that, right? It seemed like he was saying to get married to this guy and now everything's, and, and he thinks it's actually helpful to say to her, God was just as surprised as you are. He didn't know, right? And that somehow that removes, I mean, God's not problematic morally because he didn't make a bad decision there. Uh, so it may not surprise you uh, that Boyd has a similar value system politically. Um, and so this idea of power over but power under, thats I've been able to trace it to him. It may come from the Mennonites because it would be very, very similar to some of the Anabaptists, the Stanley Hauerwasses. And, um, but that idea has really caught on, especially in abuse circles. And so I've got some quotes here. Um, so Marcus Honeysett, who's over in the UK, the key principle, however, is this. Power must be exercised wholly for the benefit of others and not for the benefit of the leader. Christian leadership modeled on Jesus' leadership is self-giving, uh, self not self-serving. Right? Exercise power wholly for the benefit of others, not for yourself. Sounds pious. Uh, the Den Hollanders um, wrote a paper that they gave at ET, uh, Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, this is a lengthy excerpt. I'll let you read that on your own. Uh, Gog and Strobel, The Way of the Dragon or the Way of the Lamb. That's the book. Uh, the Way from Above. So they're saying, look, there's a, there's a better way. That's the way from above. That's power for love. By contrast, the way from below is power for the sake of being powerful, for the sake of control. Okay. Van Langberg, any power that you and I hold is God's and is given to us by him for the sole purpose of glorifying him and blessing others. Chris Moles, who I like a lot and does a lot of care f uh, for men who abuse. Uh, the bottom line is that we are different. The heart of pride longs for power over, but the heart of Christ calls for power under. I use power as a means of promoting and helping others. Power under places our priorities, motives, and expectations beneath those we love and serve, giving us little time or mo motivation to abuse. I like Moles. I just disagree with him. But um, he seems like a really good dude. What's the problem with that way of thinking? Because it kind of sounds right. Is it wrong to personally benefit from power? To personally benefit from power. So we can answer this a couple ways. Well, go ahead. Right. 
So if you, well, let me ask, so two questions I can answer this. So the first is, are we ever commanded to exercise power? All over, right? All over. So if you go to Hebrews 11, which is always my simple go-to verse for faith. So Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So anything you're doing not from faith is sin. So everything we do, we have to do in faith, right? Then uh, Hebrews eleven six and without faith, it's impossible to, to please him. That's a very similar sen sentiment. If you don't have faith, you can't please God. Uh, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you actually have to pursue gain to walk in faith. And if you're not pursuing gain, you can't be walking in faith. That's a little, I think, counterintuitive. But he rewards. So if you're not looking to God for reward, you're not walking in faith. Whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's the right. If there's no God, then what's the point? And he rewards. So we have to pursue God for reward. You know, I had a footnote in my dissertation that says the entire ministry of John Piper is essentially predicated on this point. Like that's all, that's what Piper's about, right? And he's right. And Piper loves to quote Lewis, not that God fires, finds our desires too strong, but too weak. We're far too easily pleased. We settle for, for terrible rewards, right? We should pursue ultimate rewards. And so is it wrong to personally gain? No, it's actually right to personally gain. Now, what that gain is, that can vary, and, and to a large extent, uh, that we have to have an open hand towards the providence of God, right? And God does not, uh, God's not egalitarian either. You know, you know I, I, it's funny, I tell my kids, like, I don't love you all equally. I think that's a, I think that's a dumb goal. Like, what a boring thing. Like, I don't, they're not the same people, and I'm not trying to measure it. Right? They're different people, and I love them. I love them differently. And God's not egalitarian. You know, He's not, oh, I've got to make sure that you know, Gordon gets, you know, that's too much for Gordon. Now, you know, right? God clearly doesn't. Think about where you were born. Why weren't you born in, you know, India with parents who worship cows? Why were you born now and not a thousand years ago? What advantages do you have that you made zero contribution to? Just none. Right? You might develop certain abilities, but God's clearly not concerned about a flat equality. That was one of Paul's points, you know, he says he's appointed the boundaries of our drawing that all men might seek him. God puts everywhere where he wants, when he wants, for his purposes. And it's not egalitarian. And he gives us responsibilities. And he gives us relationships. And he gives us abilities. And we're to do those things for his glory. And part of how we glorify him is by seeking reward in him. Which is not just... Um, 
eternal reward. Like Jesus is really clear, right? No one who gives up house and mother and brother will, will receive in, in this life tenfold and in the age to come. It's both, this life and the age to come. Now, does that mean that if we're just seeking the Lord, it's only blessing, it's just up and up? And no, because he's the Lord of history. And so he might declare that we are going to live through the collapse of the United States. I don't think so, but he could, right? And what would that mean? But we have to seek him for reward. So, so the issue isn't personal gain versus gain for others. The issue is righteous gain versus sinful gain to both. So I should seek righteous personal gain and righteous gain for others. Think about Jesus. So this, you know, I should probably not record this, but uh, I'm going to anyway. So Dr. Jones struggles with this. Um, you remember Dr. Jones came and did the Anger Seminar. He's my supervisor. And uh, I said, well, Jesus came for personal gain. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He wanted to be happy. Right? Is that not gain? Are, is he not king over all things? All the nations are at his feet. And it, but it's righteous gain. Right? It's righteous gain. So I think that's an important thing to think through. Because that these these quotes have this sound of like, yeah, that sounds really good. Sounds really, you know, pious. I'm not, I just use my authority to benefit others. Like, absolutely, you should use your authority to benefit others. And you should benefit as well, righteously. Okay? Uh, questions, interactions? I knew I was going to have way too much. Um, okay, so did David rape Bathsheba? If you've followed abuse discussions at all, this has been a huge issue um, in the Southern Baptist. So when the Houston Chronicle report came out that I, I talked about, the Southern Baptist said, we have to do something. So they put together this group. They wrote a book. They developed a curriculum. They had a conference, this Caring Well conference. The book is called Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. Um, and one of the key figures in that was Rachel Den Hollander. And at the Caring Well Conference, um, she made a strong argument that David raped Bathsheba. And the implication that if you disagree with that, you know, you're um, evil, um, basically. And so, uh, and then lots of... <laughs> And it's, it's actually one of the really interesting things that tends to happen in this oppressor-oppressed framework is that your disagreement, any disagreement, right? Why did D'Angelo write white fragility? Because if you don't go along with the critical race theory, it's because you're fragile, right? So any disagreement is just reveals moral defect in you. And so to, to answer, especially someone like Rachel Den Hollander that had this tremendous testimony that she did so well in public, right, with the whole Michigan state abuse thing, and she did a gospel testimony, and it's just tremendous. To oppose her, right? And she's, of course, a woman, which means she's oppressed, right? Plus, she's an advocate for the abused. So how could you disagree? 
which is why I think most people don't disagree, is that nobody wants to get shot at, right? Nobody's looking for, no, nobody that I know is saying, yeah, g bring me more problems, right? <laughs> like, I want more struggles in life. Um, but is that true? Did David rape Bathsheba? And so there's three lines of evidence that are usually brought. Now the first is that power differential, and, and the argument is basically this. It's impossible for Bathsheba to have given consent because of the power differential. So if the President of the United States uh, tells a young woman to come, that's power. But the king over the subject I think it's more power, right? So does that power differential, uh, A, remove moral accountability for Bathsheba, and B, remove the possibility of consent? And, and uh, this is one of the key issues in abuse circles. So like Diane Langberger would say no, if, if it's not safe to say no, you could lose your, and she just uses losing your job, right? If you could lose your job, then you can't give consent because the power differential is too great, let alone this, right? So, yeah, can she not give consent? Is it impossible for her to resist, and is she therefore not possible to be blamed? So, uh, Honestly, obviously don't agree with that line of reasoning. If you look at Deuteronomy 22, and these are, these are hard verses, but it's dealing with sexual sin and justice, right? Sexual immorality, there's a, a number of things going on here. Uh, so verse 23, Deuteronomy 22, 23, if there's a betrothed virgin, and you have to remember betrothal is a significant legal status, stronger than engagement today, okay? Um, like there, it's contractual. <coughs> so she belongs to another is the importance of that, right? Uh, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young, and this is because it's adultery. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so the implication is she's in the city. The, so the implication is people would hear her if she cried for help, which means she had a, a duty before God to cry for help. So if, if she... Um, had sex with this young man. And so what we're dealing with is essentially a he said, she said, right? Two people committing an act. We don't know the nature of the act. And so if she didn't cry for help, then the implication is it was consensual. And therefore she's put to death with the young man because she's in the city. And so there's a means of resistance available to her that she did not avail herself of, which would show that she wasn't resisting. Do you see the logic there, biblically? 25, 
But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who's betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense. Punish. For this is a okay, so what's the implication there? It's the biblical principle of the presumption of innocence. No one's around. So we're going to presume that she's innocent, that she did indeed cry out, even though she can't demonstrate that she did. Right? Because how could she demonstrate it? She's in the country. There's no one there. She may have actually consented and committed adultery, but she gets the presumption of innocence. Does that make sense? You see the logic biblically? So that would apply to, to Bathsheba in the city with David. Right? And there's, you know, case law like this. So if the woman could prove that she did cry out, she did resist, right? that no one was around in the city, then she would get the presumption of innocence there too. So it's, it's laying out principles that there's other biblical principles that come in and help inform. But, um, but that's the principle is if there's no way to uh, prove your guilt, you're innocent. And if there was means of resistance and there's no evidence that you resisted, you're guilty. Okay? So power differentials. Uh, that's one argument. Another argument is terminology. So, um, you know, two of the guys I interacted with were John Piper, he argues that it's rape, and Paul Carter, who I think is uh, Chowley's pastor. And uh, Piper says, look, the terminology is that he took, he took her. And so Piper... says, uh, this is a quote, he says, he didn't invite her, he didn't woo her, he didn't lure her, he didn't trick her, he took her. That's what the text says, he took her. In other words, the description is of a completely one-sided, powerful exertion of this desire with no reckoning of hers. Okay, and Carter says, King David sent armed guards to bring one of his subjects into bed, that's rape. Right? Now, uh, Carter's reading too much into the term that's translated guards. It's often translated angels, it means messengers. And the verb that is took uh, can mean fetch as well. And, and there is, um, so I could make an opposite argument to Piper's using terms in the text. Uh, she came to him. He did not drag her. He did not coerce her. That's what the text says. She came to him. In other words, the description is of a completely one-sided willing response to his invitation. That's equally selective and equally accurate, right? He's ignoring. And so one of the points I want to make, uh, it's hard to unpack a significant argument like this, but is that this text is really not focused on Bathsheba at all. It's really just focused on David. And, and to say that David raped Bathsheba is coming more from modern sensibilities about power differentials than it is about the biblical text. Okay, so that language of took, yes, that, that's there. It's only two chapters later where Amnon rapes Tamar. And, and the terminology there is force. David lay with Bathsheba. Amnon forced Tamar. Within two chapters, you have the same author having no problem presenting rape very clearly, very directly, right? 
The other evidence that's often used is Nathan's rebuke, that you know, the, it's the ewe lamb that he goes, he takes from the neighbor and he kills it. Right? And Piper says, that's even more convincing. Right? The problem is Bathsheba's not a ewe lamb. She's not a powerless animal with no moral agency. She's a woman. She's an Israelite. She's a wife. Right? She has agency. She has the ability to cry out. And so to make um, the argument that David raped Bathsheba is to impose a grid on the text that says this power differential means rape. Whereas if you let the details of the text speak for themselves, there's not nearly enough evidence to get to that conclusion. The Bible has no problem describing rape when it occurs. Uh, And it's really not about Bathsheba at all. I think the reason she's described as a ewe lamb is to say she's really not the focus here. This is really about David, right? He's, he's, uh, and David is more guilty than Bathsheba because of his position, right? And so that, you know, one of the realities of power differentials is where you have power, you have greater accountability. He is given much, much is required. Right? And so wherever the Lord has given you positions of power and authority and influence, and if you, you can fail two ways in that. One is by exercising it harshly, oppressively, tyrannically. The other way is by failing to exercise it where you should. Right? So think I, in my Bible reading, I was just reading Samuel, Eli, and his two wicked sons. And, and he, uh, the Lord brings an end to the line of Eli because he failed to uh, rebuke and correct his sons. They, w- they were blaspheming. They're priests of the Lord. And they're treating the sacrifice of the Lord like it's no big deal, that they can use it for personal gain. You want to talk about unrighteous gain, right? And so they're using their authority, their power in Israel for wicked, blasphemous gain. And Eli knows it's going on. And, and the Lord tells Samuel, and Samuel warns Eli. And there's just multiple points where Eli just doesn't do anything. You see it with David and Absalom. There's, there's several illustrations in Scripture of men failing to exercise the authority that God's given them. And it brings devastation into the lives of the people who should have been sanctified through it, right? So that's, I would use neglect more than abuse for that term, but it can be equally destructive. You can bring oppression by just, you know, power. You can also oppress by just withdrawal, right? So... David is more guilty, right? They're both guilty of adultery. He's guilty as a king, right? He's guilty as the commander. He commands the army to perform a wicked act. He's guilty in, uh, of murder towards one of his mighty men, right? Uriah is one of the 30. He's a great man. And, and, um, and, and I mean, just like, Uriah comes home. He doesn't. He won't go and sleep with his wife. 
he's far more righteous than David. Right? This whole story is just showing massive fail by David. Man after God's own heart, did tons of wonderful things, massive fail. Okay, that, and that's, that's why the details are arranged the way they are. And to, to not say that's rape is, is not to discount rape. It's not to discount uh, abuse of women. It's to say, what, let's not use biblical text for political points. Right? You want to talk about rape, let's talk about Am- Amnon and Tamar. Let's talk about Dinah. Let's, you know, there's other stories in Scripture. Um, let's not impose other philosophies to try and accomplish an agenda. So uh, there's more. If you want to read the fuller argument, it's like eight pages in the dissertation. You can um, go look it up. Uh, we're a little bit over, but let's – so just two, th- two concluding thoughts I want to leave us with. Uh, first is just to recognize hierarchy is God-given and it's good. Okay, we need to see the world is structured that way. God gave a world with authority and hierarchy. And yes, authority is often wickedly exercised, but it's the design is good. And for us to fulfill roles, right? Um, for you to parent, you need to see hierarchy as good. Right? I have authority over my child for their good. The other is that we need to both exercise and submit to authority in faith. And it's both. And some of us struggle more with one of those than the other. It could, it could actually be the exercise. Like, yeah, I'm comfortable just following whatever, whatever people say to do, but, but if I'm called upon to lead and exercise, no, I don't want to do that. And other people are like, yeah, absolutely, what, I'll lead. I'm not going to listen to you, but I will lead, right? Both those things are problems. So we, we, need, to, we need to embrace that in faith. And, and that's where, because uh, authorities have a, res- a duty of protection that we'll talk about later, when we exercise authority in faith, the church is a tremendous force for good in society. Right? That, that's why it's so important. Right? We n- there's more that we can do as we trust the Lord and, and do fulfill the responsibilities he's given us. So, All right, let's end there. I'll pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that you've given us. And we pray that um, these truths would have their right effect, that we can walk righteously as men and women before you, that we can act in this world for your glory, that we can point others to our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, Please do sanctify us in the truth. And I pray that you would bless these men and women in the weeks ahead that they would, as they go about the relationships, the responsibilities you've given them, uh, that, that you would deepen their faith, their trust in you, uh, that they would live more and more for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.